Week two, we're in week two of a new series um, called Labels, and this morning we're looking at the label Forgiven. Last week we looked at the label um, of Child, and I suppose the whole series is based around this idea that the world labels us, the enemy labels us, and we label ourselves, but God has a better label. God has a better label than you could give yourself. Uh, He has a better label than your parents have ever given you. He's got a better label than um, the world could ever give you. God has a better label. And when we understand God's label for us, it empowers us, it drives us towards obedience. Uh, We saw that with the life of Moses. We looked last week that in Moses' life, whose we are is more important than who we are. Whose we are is more important than who we are. Moses, when he was... Um, called out to uh, obedience to drive the um, or to bring the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt uh, he didn't have a great sense of identity he didn't have a a bolstered self-esteem and he didn't have a a high view of himself Um, he wasn't a super confident guy in fact he was a super uh, unconfident inconfident deconfident pre-confident I'm sure there's a prefix there that's right Um, guy that needed God's uh, authority and power in his life to be able to do those things. Uh, And so when Moses asked that question in Exodus 3, who am I to do this? God's response is the response that we need to hear. God just reveals himself to Moses. He says, I will be with you. I am who I am. I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I am who I am. And when we have a... um, an insecurity in ourselves to to step out in obedience, God would say, you don't need to be someone great because I am someone great and I own you. I'm your father. You're my child. And when you're my child, you can do what I say. And so we ask that question, who am I? Not as an excuse, but as a question of humility. Who am I to disobey? Who am I to go against what God would ever call me to? Who am I to say no to God? He is God of all. I am no one. So who am I to, to think otherwise? And so you could do yourself a favor by asking that question in a sense of humility. Who am I to go against God? And this morning, we're going to look at David and we're going to look at this label that God gives David and he gives us forgiven. And so I want to read, um, I mean, there's so much in the Old Testament about David and we're going to skim over a a fair bit this morning, but I want to read Psalm 51 and then we're going to um, talk about David's life and we'll come back to Psalm 51, but I want to set it up with Psalm 51. So if you've got it, there in front of you, um, if not, it'll be on the screen behind me. Psalm 51, verse 1. A Psalm of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. 
Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifice of the righteous, in the burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Lord God, would you speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to see your truth, who you are, and who you've created us to be? Would you help us to to walk in obedience this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty terrible present wrapper. Um, Whenever I buy a present, if the shop offers gift wrapping, I will gladly take it. I'll pay to take it. Um, I will opt for the gift bag over the wrapping paper anytime. Anyone to do that? Like, I know the gift bag's like ten bucks and the wrapping paper's two bucks, but my time's, you know, an hour's worth of wrapping is I'm paying myself more than eight dollars an hour, um, so I'm getting the gift bag and wrapping it in the gift bag. But I remember one time I went to great lengths to wrap a present for Alana for her birthday. Um, it was and this was before we had kids, so you have to understand you can't do this when you've got kids. Um, but before you've got kids and you're um, somewhat newly married, I mean, you're just, you're over the top. At least I was over the top in this gift. Uh, it was just, I think it was her 24th birthday, something like that. Um, and I decided that I would buy her a spa, but without her knowing. A spa installed in the backyard without her knowing. And so I went to great lengths uh, for a week to wrap every window in the house and to wrap just random doors in the house and say, you can't go in that room because her birthday was coming up. And so she wasn't allowed to look. She could come in the front door because it was in the backyard. And so I had organized to like, because if, I mean, if you ever want to install a spa, I didn't realize how much work it would be. Um, but you've got to pour a slab. You've got to get electrical. You've got to get, you know, it's just a big <laughs> deal. And so I told my dad my plan and he's, just shook his head and where I wanted to put the spa, you couldn't just lift it into place. You sort of had to turn the spa on its side and walk it down this narrow thing over an air conditioning unit and put it on this thing that went, and it had about, you know, a hundred mil clearance on each side of where it was going to fit. And so, um, I mean, but it, it was, it was great. And so she had no idea what was happening. And she was, I was telling her this morning about this story and she said, yeah, I remember actually you were supposed to use that money to buy a car. But instead, you bought a star. Oops. I mean, we learn from our mistakes. And um, we got a spa, but uh, she was surprised and she was happy. But, you know, um, I think, you know, this is a bad illustration, but it was the best one I could think of this morning of... We cover ourselves and we cover stuff all the time, whether we're wrapping presents, but more importantly, in our lives, we cover our sin, we cover our guilt, we cover our shame with something. We all do. We all are always covering things up. Whether we want to hide it from someone else, hide it from God or hide it from ourselves even, we try to cover ourselves. And and David is no different. And this morning, we're going to talk about how David covered his sin with more sin. He didn't cover himself with God's label of forgiveness, but he covered himself with other things. And in the end, it drove him down 
uh, the deepest hole of sin that he could find himself in. But God still was offering that label of forgiveness. And so this morning, I feel that there's people that have labeled themselves guilty or labeled themselves full of shame and not forgiven. You've covered yourself with something other than what God would want to cover you with. He would want to cover you with the blood of Jesus. Instead, you've covered yourself with actions or, 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 or attempts at holiness or, or something else. And it doesn't drive you to joy or obedience, but it, just, it drives you to despair and feelings of uh, not being good enough. And I want to have a look at how David's sin crushed him, but it also brought him to a place of accepting God's forgiveness in a way that maybe he hadn't before. So we're going to have a look at uh, a bit of David's life, and you can read this, I'm not going to read it all, but it's found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. If you've been in church um, before, uh, uh, you know, for a portion of your life, I'm sure you would have heard this story of David and Bathsheba, David's sin, his transgression. Um, But what's important to know um, prior to this is that David is described as a man after God's own heart. Before this happens, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And this is a man after God's own heart, finding himself deep in sin. So this is the sin that I want to um, talk about and what David does and then what God does in response. So 2 Samuel 11, let's read just a little bit of it to, to see what happens. Uh, verses 2 to 5, it says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So this man after God's own heart finds himself in a place where he is committing adultery and committing uh, a terrible sin, taking someone else's wife. And and it's not clear whether um, Bathsheba is um, compliant in in this request or if if she is somewhat forced by the people that come and get her. Uh, It's not clear. But what is clear is that this is a terrible sin and a terrible mistake on David's behalf. But David goes deeper into sin. From this moment on, this is just the beginning of David's sort of a downward spiral of sin. And you know, sin has a way of doing this in us. It causes us to sin more. And I suppose we can rationalize it like this sometimes. We can think, well, I've already sinned in this area, so I may as well, you know, go further into it. Or I may as well, like I've gone this far, God's going to forgive me or I've already sinned against God, I'm already disconnected from God, so it doesn't matter like, what is a bit more sin. And maybe that was the rationale that David had in his mind. Um, my guess is that David wasn't really thinking at all at this point. He was just in uh, a downward spiral of disobedience and um, satisfying his selfish desires. And so the enemy loves for us to get, forget this label of forgiveness that God has for us. He loves to label us with guilt instead because he knows if he can label us with guilt or with shame, it will drive us to do more shameful acts. We'll we'll walk out that label. And that's what David surely did. So this guilty David goes further into sin. Uh, Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, was sent for, David sent for Uriah, this is the rest of the story in 2 Samuel 11, sends for Uriah to come back so that David could 
hopefully get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife. And maybe then when she gave birth to this child that Uriah would think, well, it's my baby, not David's. Uh, But Uriah was uh, not the man that, like David, wasn't the man David was. He was a man of integrity. Uh, And maybe David thought, oh, maybe I could find a man that's like me that will do something silly like me. And and so he sent for Uriah. But Uriah wasn't the man that that David was. And so um, Uriah comes back and because he's a man of integrity, he chooses not to go home. He's a, he's a, a team player uh, and commentators say it, was, it would have been wrong for him to indulge himself and go back home uh, when his men, when his uh, team was still at battle. Uh, so he's, he stayed at the gates and, and waited to be sent back out into the battlefield. Um, so David tries again, he tries to get Uriah drunk and, and um, then maybe he'll let his, his guards down, but Uriah won't compromise. So David sends Uriah back to battle and says to um, Joab, I think it is, um, you know what, I want you to do this. I want you to send Uriah out in the front lines in the battle and then when it looks like the heat is on, tell everyone to retreat except Uriah so that he'll be killed. So basically orders a murder on Uriah. And David's not doing it himself, of course. He's trying to cover it up. So it looks like, oh, you know, people die at war all the time and Uriah was just enough, another casualty at war. And so this is like a downward spiral of like adultery and murder and deception and lies. And at the end of the chapter, maybe one of the most um, understated statements in the Bible, it says this in 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven. but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Um, and there's no other way to say that sin displeases God. Forgiveness does not mean that sin doesn't displease God. Sin displeases God. God hates sin. God despises sin. So let's not forget this when we're thinking about this story and the label of forgiveness. That David's sin and our sin displeases God. The story goes on in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan comes to David at this point. David's feeling miserable about himself. He's feeling guilty, ashamed. Um, I imagine he's quite angry at himself quite angry with the, the state of his, his heart and the state of where he's at uh, with God. And so Nathan comes and tells him this parable in verses 1 to 4 of 2 Samuel 12. So the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, there were, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took that ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. You know, it wasn't uncommon in these days for people to have sheep little ewes as pets Uh, and so maybe a parable that would have been uh, better for us to sort of grapple with was if that was a a, a pet dog or or something like that you know something that was close to home something that you cherish that your children have loved it um, something that the whole family has embraced maybe even if you're somewhat inclined a cat (laughs) 
Maybe. So it probably wouldn't have the same effect, would it? I've got two cats. I wish I didn't. Um, Anyone's got any travellers coming? In there? No, I won't. <laughs> so David didn't initially understand this to be a, a parable. He, I think he initially thought, this is a true story. Nathan's coming to report something to me that's happened. And I'm the king, so I need to issue like a judgment. And because it's, it's sort of evident in the way David responds to this story that David's thinking is not, uh, this is a parable, this is not like a nice made-up story or a bad made-up story. This is like, this is bad because there's laws against this and David responds with the law that's written about this. So David says, uh, it says in verse 5 and 6, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. There's a, uh, a law written in, I think it's Leviticus, that talks about if you take a, um, a ca- uh, some cattle, you've got to replace it with five. If you take a lamb, you've got to replace it with four. Uh, because he did such a thing and had no pity. And so I think Nathan's thinking, good, David's really angry about this. And then he drops the truth bomb on David and says, you are this man. You are the man. Suddenly the weight of David's own sin hits him square, if you like, in the forehead, no pun intended. He is undone by the, someone you'll get that in a minute, by the conviction God has brought through Nathan, you got it, you're far, much faster than me. But suddenly the weight of David's sin just hits him. It's like, he's, he's, un, he's moved from guilt and shame to this burden of, of, of hatred of himself, of hatred of, of what has happened in the situation he is in. David is broken at this point, and, and, the, and the chapter goes on of, of David's confession of his sin. He says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And then I think maybe some shocking words that are found in Scripture is the next little phrase that Nathan says. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Just like that. The Lord has taken away your sin. Just like that. Lust, maybe rape, definitely murder, definitely adultery, lies, deception. Just like that, the Lord's taken it away. So much failure, so many people hurt, people have died. And just like that, God says to David, it's taken away. Just at a slight confession. That's all David said, I've sinned against the Lord. Boom, taken away. What kind of righteous God is this? You can't just pass over sin like that. It reeks of injustice. And I imagine that there would have been people, maybe that found out about this, that God had taken David's sin away, that would have been angry. And I imagine there's times in our life where people have um, sinned terribly against us. And the idea that God could take away their sin could forgive their sin just it doesn't make us happy it makes us mad it makes us angry and it makes us angry and it makes us upset because we're misunderstanding what taking away sin means we haven't thought through or fully comprehended what 
it is to take away sin. We would be right to be outraged, we would be right to be angry if God was simply sweeping sin under the carpet, if God was simply just ignoring sin or pretending it didn't happen. Or moving past it, it's no big deal. He's a man after my own heart, so it'll be all right. But God is not doing that at all. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 3 what happens to this sin. Romans 3 verse 25 to 26, it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He's talking about David's sin as well as all the Old Testament sins. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just as and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So at the time, and in a moment, David's sin is taken away. But God knows that in the future, that sin is not taken away to be ignored, it's taken away to be put on someone else, onto Jesus, onto Jesus on the cross. And so God displays his righteous justice through Jesus on the cross. The sin does go punished. It gets the death penalty. It gets what it deserves. It gets the wrath of God in its completeness. So when we feel outraged at the idea that someone could be just forgiven like that, that a rapist, a murderer, a child molester, the worst sorts of sins we can conjure up in our mind can be forgiven, that God could somehow forgive those people. He could take their sin away from them. We have to remember that he takes that sin and he puts it on Jesus. Just like he takes your sin and he puts it on Jesus. God doesn't just look the other way. He punishes sin in its completeness. And David outlines this in Psalm 51. This is where we're getting to, Psalm 51. That David's understanding of what has happened is that God has not just taken away his sin, but God has forgiven him and put his sin somewhere else. So I want to highlight a few phrases and, and thoughts in Psalm 51 as we um, think about this label of forgiveness for us. And right from the start in Psalm 51, it says, um, verse 1, Psalm 51, verse 1. Can you put that up for us, Ebony? I forgot to write it down here. Have mercy me, mercy me, mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Right from the start, David's forgiveness, your forgiveness, is not because of something you've done or haven't done, but it's because of his great love, his great compassion. David, sorry, my words are terrible this morning. David is labelled forgiven according to God's love and compassion. This is huge. This is the beginning of walking confidently in the forgiveness God has for you because it's based entirely on Him. Not on you, and not on your ability to make it up to God. At no point does David say in this psalm that he will make it up to God, that he will repay God, that he'll somehow make up for all the wrongs he's done, because there's no way he ever could. And for us to walk in forgiveness, we have to understand that the forgiveness that God gives us is based on His love for us, not on our love for Him, on His compassion for us not on our obedience for him or to him. And the enemy loves to throw this lie at us, that God forgives you as long as you don't keep messing up. God forgives you 
as long as you read the Bible enough. God forgives you as long as you pray enough. God forgives you as long as you give enough, as long as you serve enough, or whatever it is you want to put in that um, as long as. There's people here even this morning that would think, you know, I know God might have forgiven you, Brad, but he probably hasn't forgiven me because you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know the sin in my life, how often it's been, how repetitive it's been. God's forgiveness of you is not based on anything you've done or haven't done. It's according to his love for you. God is limitless and his forgiveness is according to this limitless love. And you might say at this, well, you need to be careful, Brad, where you're going with this, that God just keeps forgiving and keeps forgiving and keeps forgiving. People will think they can do whatever they want and God will forgive them. Yeah, that's right. They can. You could do whatever you want and God will forgive you. And that's a scary thing to, to think about, isn't it? It's a confronting thing to think about because we who are trying our best want to think that, well, surely there's got to be some obedience, some level of the law kept for people to, to have, obe- to have uh, forgiveness. But God's forgiveness is according to his love. And before you shoot me, let's see what happens here. Is my encouragement for you to just go for it, sin as much as you want? Definitely not. No, my encouragement for you is the extravagance of God's forgiveness for you, the extravagance of God's love for you, to see the extravagance that no matter your sin, no matter the depth of your sin, no matter the repetitiveness of your sin, that God labels you forgiven. Love attracts love. When we see God as a forgiving God, it attracts us to him, not away from him. And that's why I say you could sin all your life. Because when you see God as a forgiving God, it's not going to drive you towards more sin. It's going to actually drive you towards obedience. It's going to drive you away from sin. You haven't experienced the love of God if you think you can just do whatever you want and God will keep loving you. When you experience the love and forgiveness of God, it drives you away from sin. It, it changes your desires. It moves the mountain of your heart to, to stop wanting to do that and towards obedience. So his love for you, his forgiveness of you is according to his love, not according to anything you could ever do for him. David goes on in verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions. And in verse 5, he says, surely I was sinful at birth. To know you're forgiven, for David to know that he was forgiven, he first had to understand the weight of his own sin. The weightier the sin in his mind, the greater the love and the forgiveness he was experiencing. You know, there's a story in Luke 7 where a woman comes and uh, anoints Jesus with an expensive uh, jar of perfume and the people around are like, "Uh, Jesus, you better stop this woman. You know, she's wasting all this perfume. It's, it's a waste. And Jesus says in, in Luke 7, verse 47, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever's been forgiven little loves little. Now, I don't think Jesus was saying that because the other people around the room had sinned less. But I think what he was saying to the people is she understands the weight of her sin. She understands the weight of the love I have for her. She has been forgiven of everything and she's poured out everything on me. 
and for some of us, we could do with a, a prophet Nathan in our life, that our sin would hit us like a ton of bricks. The weight of our sin would hit us and destroy us so that we could see how good God's love is. We need the Holy Spirit to show us the weight of our sin so that we could experience the brilliance of the forgiveness that God has for us. The label that he has for us is better than what we can give ourselves. David goes on in verse 7 of Psalm 51, he says, I will be clean, whiter than snow. He's beginning to sort of almost prophesy his own label here, his own identity, that I'll be clean, whiter than snow. How could a man who has done this sin ever say that about himself? Because he understands the great love and forgiveness God has for him. Can you say that about yourself, that I'll be clean? I am clean, whiter than snow. I am pure. I am without fault, without sin. Whiter than snow. Forgiven. David is forgiven. No matter what, no matter the sin, the magnitude or the repetitiveness, God calls David forgiven and he calls you forgiven. David goes on in verse 10 and he says, create a pure heart. Create in me a pure heart. And this is one of many ways that David begins to pray for change in his own life. That the forgiveness doesn't just stop at him and make him feel good about himself. But David prays for change to come into his own life. And the truth is, forgiven people desire change. If you're truly embracing the forgiveness God has for you, it will change your desires. It will change, it will make you want to change. It will make you want to become the person God wants you to be. It won't make you want to keep sinning. When you accept forgiveness from God the way he intends you to, it results in your desires changing, your heart changing, your prayers changing. Because you are forgiven, you are free from sin and free to love God with everything you have. God labels you forgiven. And when you embrace this label, you'll see your heart to begin to change. But the forgiveness comes first. David goes on in verse 12, and he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Forgiveness leads to joy. It is interesting to me that in this psalm, and by the way, I should have said, this psalm is uh, written straight after Nathan comes. You can read that in the title of Psalm 51, that this psalm is in response. I should have said that before to give us some context. But it's in response to the sin and, and the way that God has spoken to him, to him through the prophet Nathan. And it's interesting to note, in this psalm, there's no prayer of David to say um, about anything sexual at all, even though this started with a sexual sin. There's no prayer of David to say, um, you know, um, help me to avoid temptation in the future. Take away these evil desires from me. Give me sexual restraint. And why is that? Why is it that he doesn't pray against this to happen again in the future? Instead, he prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because I think it's, it's true that the sin, any sin, is the symptom of the heart, of a heart diseased with misdirected affection. The reason he gives into this sin is because he doesn't have the fullness of joy found in Jesus at that point in his life. 
He's not walking and experiencing the fullness of joy that he once had before. That maybe when he was labeled a man after God's own heart. And what drives us to sin is when we are not in a place where we're experiencing the fullness of joy found in Jesus. And so if you want to avoid sin in the future, get caught up in the joy that Jesus gives you through his salvation. The sin is a symptom of a heart disease with misdirected affection. And the reason he gives in to this sin is because he doesn't have the fullness of joy found in Jesus. The reason anyone gives in to sexual sin or any sin is because they're not living with the joy of their salvation. Guilt leads to despair and more sin. Forgiveness leads to joy and a better life. So David here is experiencing the the forgiveness that God has offered him, that God has taken away his sin and David understands this to be forgiven. And I love what happens next in the psalm. Then. What a pivotal word that is, then. And then what happens? Verse 13, 14 and 15 says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. When it comes down to it, like with Moses, we're labeled to obey. We're not just labeled to feel good about ourselves. This series is not just to bolster your self-esteem and make you walk out going, oh, good. I'm, I'm, I'm good to just keep doing nothing and, and God labels me forgiven. No, we're labeled to obey. It's the labels that God gives us drive us towards more obedience. And in this case, forgiven people give. Forgiven people give Jesus to others. And David says this, like this sense of evangelism in the Old Testament. I love this, that he will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. When God gives you the label forgiven, it doesn't end with you. Like Moses, labels are not given so that we'll just feel better, but they're given to fuel obedience and action. Forgiveness, when embraced as our true identity, drives us towards telling others about this great joy and freedom. When we understand the weight of our sin and then the greatness of forgiveness, we can't help but tell others. You can be free from this despair. You can be free from that sense of guilt and shame. That disconnection you feel from God is dealt with at the cross of Jesus. It drives us to give people Jesus. Like the woman in Luke 7, there is an overflow when we walk in forgiveness. It drives us towards pointing to Jesus. Look at this great man, this great Jesus. He forgives me. He sets me free from guilt and despair. And he can do the same for you. So forgiven people give Jesus and then they give praise as well. That David talks about his tongue singing out of his righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Not only will we tell others about Jesus, but our mouth will break open in praise. We won't be able to stop ourselves singing and declaring the goodness of God to bring him glory and to bring our hearts to light. There's nothing better for your heart than to sing of God's forgiveness to you, than to sing of God's love. When you sing of God's forgiveness and of his love, and that's why we do it every single Sunday and we'll continue to do it every single Sunday. When we sing of his love and his forgiveness, it brings delight to us and glory to him. It restores joy to us, the joy of our salvation when we dwell on it and when we remember it. So let your label forgiven drive you to give. 
God labels you forgiven. Whatever your sin, whatever your state of your heart, God's label for you is forgiven. Because of his great love for you. Because of his great compassion for you. And when you embrace that label, it will drive you to give Jesus to others and give praise to God. Let your label help you and drive you towards obedience. Embrace your label, embrace that forgiveness so that you can walk freely in the plan God has for you. You don't need to run from him, but you can run to him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so thankful for your, for your love for us. And God, I pray this morning that people would understand that you have forgiven them. You've taken their sin away from them and put it on Jesus on the cross. You've dealt with it. They don't need to experience your wrath because your wrath has been put on Jesus. And God, I pray that as we, as we walk in your obedience, as we walk in your forgiveness, sorry, this morning, it would drive us towards obedience. God, help us to be confident when we come to you, confident when we talk to others, that, that we are forgiven, we're loved by the Creator. And God, I pray for anyone here this morning that feels like their life is riddled with shame and guilt. And God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, turn their heart towards you again. Show them your love. Show them all that you've done for them. God, we want to give people Jesus. We want to give you praise. We want our lives to count and for your work in us to be for, for your purpose and for your glory. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship as we close this morning.